a little bit of retrofitting to make the plan look as it does today. Yeah, as long as you engineer the process to achieve your end goal, you were right about it all the time. This week, history is a radish best preserved. Coming up on today's show, Council is determined to ensure that Accidental Beach remains an accident, while making clear that large towers south of White Avenue were not an accident. They were always supposed to be there. The plan says so, see? Blatchford is just about ready for residential construction to start, and Hangar 11 fears he'll meet the same fate as his 10 younger brothers. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally. We're here in episode four. We did it a whole month. Go us. Last week, I started off with plugs and you're all relieved from collective punishment. Thank you for the reviews on iTunes. We got some ratings. Yeah, we appreciate them. Uh, One thing I'll remind everyone to do is you don't have to subscribe to this in a podcast app. If you head over to speakingmunicipally.taprootedmonton.ca, our podcast site, you can sign up via email and get a fancy email whenever we post a new episode. So you don't have to be all up with that newfangled podcast technology to get us in your inbox every week. Good old email. We'll start briefly with an update from a story from last week. Uh, This morning, I was a bit surprised because my phone started ringing, and my first thought was, who uses a telephone anymore? It's 2018. My second thought, after I looked at the caller ID and saw Edmonton Federation of Community Leagues, was, oh, who did I piss off last week? (laughs) Uh, Turns out, the executive director of the FCL. Um, She was very gracious in that... She believed that I could say whatever I wanted in a free society. She just wished that I didn't on Twitter call the EFCL a secret conservative lobby organization. That makes her job a little bit harder. But credit where it's due, we had a really good conversation. I talked to her about 20 minutes, and she was very receptive and searching for feedback about areas where the EFCL can improve. She didn't really seem to think that my comments were that far out of left field, so there's a bit of self-awareness there. She's only started a couple months ago. You could tell she was trying to find ways to sort of rehabilitate the image of the FCL because she used to be the president of a Ritchie Community League. I'm in Hazeldean myself, and we both saw the sort of underbelly of the FCL's representation in the MNO consultations. So, hey, maybe the FCL won't be a secret conservative lobby organization anymore. Sounds like a productive phone call. Yeah, I did say that on the podcast again this week, so no more phone calls, please. <laughs> Let's start it off with the regular segment, some rapid fire news from the past week. Half of all community leagues surveyed by the city felt unsatisfied with the city processes for managing the construction of outdoor projects like playgrounds and tennis courts. Complaints were heard about the projects taking about four years, with most of those being dealing with city bureaucracy. Edmonton is actually giving Pawnee a run for their money and time taken to turn things into parks. The 37th Fringe, known as Fringosaurus Rex, had a record-breaking year. Attendance of over 800,000 people visited the grounds and more than 133,000 tickets sold, which is a new record for the festival. When a festival has an entire city's population worth of attendance, at what point does it stop being fringe? There's a reason why you cannot take a left turn almost anywhere in Toronto, said Don Iveson about the plan to prohibit southbound left turns at 109th Street and 104 Ave to accommodate the new LRT. 50 vehicles making the turn per hour were not deemed worth the $300 million grade separation would cost. When asked for comment, a disgruntled motorist near the scene said, Don't need to turn left. Iverson can't go any further left. 
All right, let's get into our big items for the week. One of the things that council was talking about was the urban beach, or as it's more popularly known, accidental beach, um, and the idea that we could potentially turn some other location along the river into an urban beach for Edmonton. So council looked at this issue. There was a few options on the table, and they ultimately decided none of them are good, way too expensive, no more beach for you. And how much would accidental beach, the premier beach, have cost? They looked at six locations, and they varied in cost depending on the location and stuff, but basically it was between 900000 and $1.3 million for concept and design per location. Council has a storied history of rejecting urban beach proposals. This one seemed sort of like shockingly on the nose because rather than talk about accidental beach, the only beach in Edmonton, they said, you know what we could do? Instead of improving this one beach... We could get six total beaches in all these different places and pay a couple million dollars each. At what point did administration think, yeah, council's going to go for this? Especially when they looked at the metrics for this year and realized that a record-breaking day was 50 people on Accidental Beach. A far cry from the visitors that came last year. So having mocked the 50 vehicles per hour in the earlier segment turning, not a lot of ground to stand on on this. But keep in mind, the water levels were high this year. There was smoke in the sky. Health Canada was encouraging people to stay inside. I think there were external factors preventing beach attendance. One of the things that's interesting to me about this is all of the infrastructure is on the other side of the river, right? So we've been working on Louise McKinney Riverfront Park for years in Edmonton. It was kind of ridiculous to me that we were going to build a beach on the opposite side where there was no infrastructure. So in a way, I'm actually quite happy that Accidental Beach is going to be a thing of the past. Louise McKinney, it's one of the several beaches that administration in the city have worked through and either rejected or improved in the past. This one's not actually like gone. It's still going to happen just very late in the future. Currently, Louise McKinney is going to go and have a pretty wide redevelopment that's going to cost close to $30 million for the whole project. But construction on any of that won't start until at minimum 2021 because they want to synergize with the completed Valley Line and Aldrich Tower, which might might occur on the top of the bank. That makes sense. It makes you know a lot of sense to me that you would want to align with the Valley Line LRT. What's surprising is how long we've been talking about redeveloping Louise McKinney and the, the number of stages that we've gone through. Like this is one of those projects that I feel is never ending. So the beach part of Louise McKinney first came up in 2013. It kind of died after a, a year or two. So in a way, I suppose accidental beach is a good thing in that it's brought it back to the table. It's back on the agenda again. So only 50 people a day, which is, I suppose, as you say, not so bad when you consider some of the other factors. But on the other hand, the city had to do a lot of work this year to build some infrastructure there to handle the number of people they expected. That's one of the changes going forward. There's going to be all sorts of beaches. These sandbars, they do pop up every once in a while. And now that we've discovered them, people will probably go use them. The city is better prepared now. Administration is going to respond with porta potties and garbage collection and patrols whenever one of these pops up and becomes popular. So that's one of the good features that come out of this. The other sort of depends on your opinion good feature is there was some traffic calming done on 98th Ave in preparation for the huge crowds of 50 people going to Accidental Beach. Right. And those consultations are going to be ongoing with the Cloverdale community. One of the specific features that was requested, and council specifically made a motion to say, what can we do about having off-peak parking on 98th Ave? So we just have a parking lane only when it's not rush hour. We do this all over the city. Very common. Yeah, very common. Administration came out hard no 
No, there will be no parking off-peak on 98th Ave because of its arterial function. And they were they were unambiguous in this. It wasn't, here's some justification, here's some metrics we did. It's just hard no, this is not the usage of the road. Some of the things they said were, the primary function of an arterial road is to deliver traffic from collector roads to freeways or expressways and between urban centers at the highest level of service possible. The problem is, another arterial road just across the river, 99th Street, has the same 24,000 vehicles per day, and it has off-peak parking. This jumps us over to the other side of the river at the other thing that happened this week, which was Plan White. There was a discussion about the area around White Ave and how we want to see that develop through the future. The vision presented around Plan White was to preserve and strengthen the corridor's extinct core heritage commercial area and character, while ensuring new development supports a compact build form and pedestrian-oriented development. You'll notice nothing about cars appeared on that, because there's another big arterial road right over there. It's called White Ave, and we're suggesting we want to add more traffic calming, more pedestrian safety measures, so why can't we add them on 98th Ave? Doesn't make a lot of sense. You'd think that uh, we do it all over, as you say, it would be possible on 98th Ave. Plan White is interesting, looking to the future, 20 to 25 years into the future, how are we going to handle development in this area? This plan was underway already, but council approved some towers while it was being developed. If you look at the Plan White plans, there's basically three specific zones that will exist. There's going to be the Heritage District, which is, you know, exactly where you'd expect it, right around the farmer's market, where right. there's the old buildings, and there's going to be a maximum of four-story building heights there. There's going to be the Main Street District, which is the abutting area. So from 109th Street to a bit further in, once you hit the Heritage District, that's going to be six stories. So it allows, you know, the base layer and a little bit of a podium. And then there's going to be the Urbanization District, where it's going to be 16 stories. The interesting thing about the Urbanization District is there's two sort of like disparate zones where the Urbanization District is zoned. And what are in those two zones, Troy? Well, there's South Park, the 16-story tower, and there's Mezzo, the other big tower that was approved while Plan White was ongoing. Sort of makes you think, hey, we already approved these towers, so let's just assume Plan White allowed for those. A little bit of retrofitting to make the plan look as it does today. Yeah, as long as you engineer the process to achieve your end goal, you were right about it all the time. The mezzo is really interesting to me. That was one of the towers that council approved, and there was a, quite a bit of conversation and discussion with the community about whether or not a tower that tall should be approved for the White Area, White Avenue area. And uh, the original proposal included a bit of a carrot in the, the form of 10% affordable housing, which... After it was approved, the developer tried to remove and say, no, we don't actually have the market to do this. A developer in Edmonton reneged on their commitments? Imagine that. Yeah, almost throws back to the trailer of this podcast. So one of the things that this building has done is not only lead to this Plan White, but also is a big contributor to the Community Amenity Contribution Policy, which council approved just before going on summer break earlier this year. Um, which basically sets out some rules for community benefits from towers that are taller than the existing plans, statutory plans would allow for. Um, so the mezzo being one of those things, there's a formula that can result in amenities like art, historic preservation, park space, family housing with at least three bedrooms, community league facilities, those types of things. And the whole idea is so that the next time a mezzo building comes up and the area around and the area in which it is located doesn't allow for a tower that tall, council doesn't have to 
each and every time come up with a formula to say, you need to do this for the community. There's a standard to follow, which is a very good thing. I remember when these towers were being discussed, you had community leagues saying, no, this isn't good enough. This, we want this and that. It almost felt like they were shaking down the developers, even though, you know, they're being, the developer is getting upzoned. So the value of their property increased. Right. But you never want to be in a situation where it feels like your community organizations are shaking down developers for a park. It just doesn't give you good feels after you get the park. Absolutely. One other thing about Plan White you noticed, scramble intersections. Yeah. So this is something that we've sorely lacked in Edmonton. We've got, I think, only one of them in Edmonton, which is just by Rice Howard Way on Jasper Ave. Right. But a scramble intersection is where every mode gets their own exclusive phase. So cars will be able to go straight through and turn left and right and pedestrians will all wait on the curb and then pedestrians get full-fledged they can go anywhere they want they can they, walk diagonally through the intersection straight across absolutely do a little loop in the middle and this the problem with scramble intersections why edmonton administration hasn't previously used them in the past is they do cause a bit of a delay for everyone in theory because you know now cars have to wait to turn right they can't turn right on red pedestrians have to wait for both phases of traffic before they can cross it starts to break down though on places like white ave and you'll see this the intersection of gateway boulevard and white ave is going to be probably the first place that's going to get this because it's so busy but when you have a constant stream of pedestrians vehicles can't turn right, right. because they have to yield the right of way a scramble intersection makes everyone just flow a bit better, and it also is so much safer. And as a pedestrian, if you've got to cross one way and then the other way, you've got to wait for two phases in, in a normal intersection. Diagonal straight through. Right. So they haven't said specifically which intersections it's going to be on. Uh, obviously, Gateway Boulevard and White is going to be one. Just anyone who's walked there knows it's going to be one. And they're going to study it throughout 2019 and see what the result of that is. But that's not the only thing. It was very shocking because no one showed up to Plan White, either in for or against. There was just no speakers. Not on even the, the OSBA or anyone like that. One of the things mentioned this Plan White is they want to create what they called a active transportation spine. So the Contraflow Lane up Calgary Trail that's currently for buses which I've never actually seen a bus run up there. Actually, I took the 52 from Old Strathcona to downtown today. It goes up that lane. Wow. So we have a bus that uses this dedicated lane Route of traffic. 52. Um, this is going to become a pedestrian boulevard and a bike corridor, which makes sense. It can now connect with the 76 Ave bike route that now runs east-west at the end of that bus lane. So that's going to be really interesting, but it's huge. I mean, this is... We're talking about there was this huge sort of kerfuffle around 109th Street getting a bike lane. Right. But here we are adding a pedestrian boulevard and a bike lane straight smack dab down the biggest arterial corridor in Edmonton. No one showed up. No one covered in the media. That's that's going to be an interesting thing to watch. There was another change that did get a lot of speakers, and this one's a little close to you, Mac. Hangar 11 was discussed at council. This is the last remaining um, historic building on the city center airport land. So just right off the top, I'm a board member of the Edmonton Heritage Council, so you can probably guess where I'm going to land on this issue. Uh, but it came up because the building needs some rehabilitation. The estimate is between 14 and $20 million to rehabilitate it properly. It's in good shape, and it's not had major alterations since it was built in 
1942-1943, kind of right around the middle of the of the war there. Um, but to to use it in the future, we're going to need to put some work into it. Um, it's on land that Nate would like to use for expansion. So one of the questions is, should we preserve this historic building, which many would argue we've not been great at doing in Edmonton, or should we tear it down and allow Nate to expand onto that piece of land. And we already have one of the hangars preserved and has international use, right? So the Alberta Aviation Museum is one of the hangars, and it's obviously very actively used by Edmontonians for the museum, but also plenty of events. Um, There are plans, of course, also to preserve the control tower that's at the Sydney Center Airport. So why is this hangar so critical to preserve in Blatchford? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is it is a physical connection to Edmonton's role in the Second World War and the role that we played in sort of Northwest continental defense. Um, It's the last remaining hangar on the east side of the airport. Yes, we've named the area Blatchford after the the airfield, but to have a physical space there, a physical connection, a reminder of our role there, I think is really important. Beyond that, the city center ARP and the master plan for Blatchford talked about history as one of the principles. I mean, it's right there in the plan that there's a rich history attached to the area and it should be embodied throughout each stage with preservation, naming, interpretation, and designation. Uh, There was never the intention that we would tear all of the hangars down and have nothing left and just name the thing Blatchford. So it's kind of interesting that this is the last opportunity to fulfill that principle of the plan and council had to make a decision on it. Like, haven't we already made that decision? The plan called for the preservation of this hangar from the beginning. I'm sure at some point they'll make plan Blatchford that will say they've planned to save this from the beginning. Retroactively. The other interesting thing about this building is that it's on the inventory of historic resources. And so many people might have thought, well, what are you talking about? We can't tear it down. It's on the inventory. There are two things in Edmonton. One is the inventory. One is the register. The inventory lists buildings and other resources that we think merit conservation, but they have no legal protection. There's nothing to stop us from tearing them down. That's uh, where Hangar 11 is at. If we wanted to give it legal protection, council would need to approve adding it to the municipal register of historic resources. Why wouldn't council automatically add everything on the inventory to the register? If something merits preservation, doesn't that by definition mean like preservation is merited? Probably the simplest answer is that there's a cost involved with adding things to the register because when they do that, they designate it. They generally also take some funds from the historic reserve fund uh, to support the rehabilitation of those facilities. I suppose this also came up just a couple weeks ago with the high level bridge and discussions about the LRT because, you know, if this was just any other concrete bridge, we could have done anything we wanted and made it bigger, made it bulkier support more trains, but because it's a historic resource, we have to preserve its character and design, which makes things much more difficult when you want to make radical changes, probably by design. It does, but there's a benefit to this, right? So if we are able to preserve Hangar 11, it does give us a a great connection to an important part of Edmonton's history, and we need more of those, not fewer of those. So I'm in favor definitely of, of keeping it. It's already had a pretty interesting history too, so it was used in the war, and then it was empty for a really long time. Um, It's had everything from a paintball facility to a holistic healing center in there. When it uh, was just before it was shut down, there was, I think, just over 40 businesses that were using Hangar 11 and some of the facilities around it for 
for office space, and a little over half of those were related to aviation. So council, they took the middle of the road position on this one. I think the sensible thing, the bold option would have been, we're just going to preserve this thing. Uh, the sensible thing is we're going to study this a little bit more as council is wont to do. Uh, so they are going to have administration come back after they've done a functional use study. Basically, let's figure out what could we use this building for? Um, and also, who could we partner with? How could we get some funding for it? Well, and Councillor Henderson, as a old arts guy, he old as in previously arts, not old as in he's old, but Experience. he is old. Yeah. Um, yeah. He suggested that this sort of building is actually one in a million because it's got no pillars or columns supporting the center. Right. Which, especially for theater, that gives you a lot of really cool options. He said they don't make buildings like that anymore. It's just not the way it's done. It's made of um, Douglas firwood from BC that apparently hardens as it ages. So it's structurally really, really sound as a building. Another brief interesting note, Blatchford, it's getting close to being ready to have actual shovels in the ground. Home builders are supposed to be able to start construction at the end of the year. I think there were 12 lots at Blatchford that were up for sale. Um, the first six went out already and the, the remainder will be done by the end of the year. So we're getting very, very close to that stage where home builders can be building the actual houses, the duplexes, the short high rise buildings that people will ultimately move into. Hopefully when people move in, they'll have a nice hangar to go enjoy activities or partnerships or municipal uses in. Absolutely. <laughs> That's all we have on the docket for this week of Speaking Municipally. As we like to remind you on our show, we're part of Taproot Edmonton. We produce a number of weekly roundups on topics of interest. We do music and tech. We are launching a new roundup coming up very, very soon, so stay tuned for that. We do a council one, which if you're listening to this show, you probably are going to be interested in. Every Friday, we go through the agenda so that you don't have to and pull out the key items that you need to know about council for the week ahead. I'm going to go to http colon slash slash taprootedmonton.ca and subscribe today. Until I do that, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipal.